Well, good morning, church. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. It's towards the beginning in your Bibles. Um, it's after Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. If you hit 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Chronicles, you've gone too far. You know, it's been so exciting the last about three years. We've done a lot of study verse by verse in the New Testament. Um, we did go back and hit the book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament, but I'm excited today to kind of kick us off on a new series through First and Second Samuel. And as you'll see, we're going to learn about some biblical characters named uh, Samuel the prophet, uh, King Saul, the first king of Israel, and then David. And as we go through First um, and Second Samuel, I really think we're just going to see that the only hero in the Bible is Jesus. And he is so good that he will use broken people like us for his purpose. So as you're turning to 1 Samuel, I want to give us a little bit of background of what's going on in Israel's history at this time. Hopefully you guys all know about the Israelites being stuck in Egypt as slaves. Well, they've been freed from Egypt from slavery. Moses led them across the Red Sea. Uh, but because of their lack of faith, they didn't enter into the promised land right away. They wandered for 40 years. Well, Moses has now died. Joshua is leading the people of Israel. And he's leading them across the Jordan River into the promised land. And they begin to conquer uh, the land. After the death of Joshua, the nation of Israel is now living in the promised land. And you can see the map of all the different tribes spread out in the promised land. Now, as they enter into this time, this is the time of the judges. And it was a bad time for Israel. You can read all about it in detail in the book of Judges. But basically, Israel would rebel from the Lord. And in their rebellion, they would worship false gods and idols. God would allow, because of their rebellion, God would allow them to be overrun by their enemies and conquered. And then as their enemies had conquered them and they were paying tribute to their enemies and foreign uh, nations around them, God would be there and Israel would remember, oh yeah, we have a God who rescued us from Egypt. We have a God who's all-powerful. And so they'd cry out to the Lord. And God in His grace and mercy would then raise up a judge among Israel to then conquer their enemies and free them from their enemies. But then in their time of blessing, their time of peace and prosperity, Israel would once again turn to idols. And so it became this vicious cycle that just happened again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. And it's interesting that it was in their time of peace and prosperity that they were most tempted to then turn to worship idols. The book of Judges ends with Judges chapter 21, verse 25, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a dangerous thing. You see, when we choose to do what is right in our eyes instead of what's right in God's eyes, that's called rebellion. And that's where the nation of Israel was at. And it's into this time of rebellion and chaos that we now pick up our story in 1 Samuel. 
1 Samuel chapter 1 and verses 1 through 8, we read about Hannah's barrenness. Verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim in the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So this man, Elkanah, he's living in the mountains of Ephraim, right there in the middle of Israel. It's about 20 miles north from Jerusalem. And verse 2, this man had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So this man who will become the prophet Samuel's father, he has two wives. What do we do with this? You see, whenever we read the Bible, it's important that we ask ourselves, is this passage telling me what to do or simply what happened? And if you want to take notes, that's your first fill in the blank today on the back of your note sheet. As we read God's word, we have to ask, is this passage telling me what to do or simply telling me what happened? In this example of polygamy, we notice this passage simply says Elkanah had two wives. It doesn't say God was pleased. It doesn't say go and do likewise. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they who are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus did not say a man will be joined to his wives, nor did he say the three or four shall become one flesh. And yet, we have some big names in the Bible that had multiple wives. Guys like Abraham, Jacob, David, and Solomon. And yet, amazingly, God still used broken and sinful people like them for his purpose and his glory. It wasn't that he was condoning everything that they did, but it was God and his power and his love that said, I can still use that. I can still work in the midst of that. That's amazing grace. So back to our text. It says that Elkanah's wife, Peninnah, had children, but his other wife, Hannah, was barren. Verse 3, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So at this time in Israel's history, Shiloh is where the tabernacle was. Before Israel built the temple in Jerusalem, they had a mobile temple called the tabernacle, a tent version. And they'd moved it all over that 40 years in the wilderness. They've moved it now into the promised land. And right now it's in a town called Shiloh. And that is where each year Elkanah and his family would come and they would worship the Lord and bring sacrifices to the Lord at the tabernacle. The rest of verse 3 says also, The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Now, these guys were horrible. Remember, this is the time of the judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. The nation was corrupt as a whole. And yet it was so corrupt that even these two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt. And we're going to read more about them next week. But, Despite the nation's corruption, despite the priest's corruption, this man and his family still came to worship the Lord. They were willing to swim against the current in order to seek and serve the Lord. 
And so verse 4. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But, the, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. You see, Peninnah had the children of her husband, but Hannah had the love of her husband. Both of these wives suffered in different ways. But notice how Peninnah dealt with her pain. In verse 6, it says, And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she, Peninnah, provoked Hannah. Therefore Hannah wept and did not eat. To me, it breaks my heart to think that this family is going to worship the Lord and this is what's taking place. On their way to worship is when Peninnah would really jab in her finger and provoke Hannah year after year. Peninnah was suffering because her husband loved Hannah more. Hannah was suffering because she was barren and so she wept and she didn't eat. But as we will see, Hannah eventually takes her suffering to the Lord. And we don't read about Hannah repaying evil for evil to the other wife. Look at how her husband responds in verse 8. It says, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to Hannah, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, I don't know about you, but I'll give him partial credit, right? He's trying. He is, right? It's not that he doesn't know. He he knows that she's grieved about not having any sons. He's trying to talk with her, but he doesn't quite get it. Essentially, he says, look, babe, you've got me. You don't need a son. As nice as that is, guys, don't try that at home, okay? Or do, and tell me how it goes. I'd love to know. It would have been far better for Elkanah to seek to empathize with Hannah's sorrow instead of questioning the validity of her sorrow. Why are you crying? Why are you still crying? Are you really sure you should be crying about this? Not the best way to go. He would have been better off pointing her to the Lord instead of pointing her to himself to find satisfaction. Now in verses 9 through 18, Hannah seeks the Lord. Verse 9, so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Very descriptive words there. Just kind of think in your mind what this would have looked like. And yet, what I love is in the midst of her despair, Hannah does not fight with her rival because that wouldn't heal her pain. In the midst of her despair, Hannah doesn't look to her husband because he can't meet what she needs. Hannah looks to God because he alone understands and he alone can change her circumstances. Verse 11, Then Hannah made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, 
and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So Hannah makes this vow to the Lord that, God, if you give me a son, then I'm going to give him right back to you. He's going to live at the tabernacle and spend all of his days serving you. She talks about how no razor would come upon her son's head because her son would be under the Nazarite vow from birth. The Nazarite vow was something that an Israelite might take up for a few weeks at a time as as an opportunity to be especially dedicated to the Lord. And part of the no haircut rule was just to outwardly symbolize I'm dedicating everything I am to the Lord during this time. And so what was unique is that Hannah was saying, my son is going to be under this Nazarite vow from birth for his whole life, and he's going to be all for you. What's amazing is Hannah didn't try to barter with the Lord. She didn't try to say, Lord, give me a son and I'll give you something else. She didn't try that. But she says, Lord, give me a son so that I can give him right back to you. I don't know about you, but that's pretty amazing. And it surely humbles me. Now, remember, Hannah is in bitterness of soul as she prayed. And Eli, the priest, was there watching her. Look at verse 12. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now, Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Now, pause right there for just a moment. This is a great reminder that you can pray out loud or you can pray silently in your heart. You can pray with your eyes open or your eyes closed. If you're driving, I hope you're praying with your eyes open. You can pray with your hands folded like they teach you in Sunday school or you can pray with your hands outstretched out to the Lord. You see, prayer is more about your heart language than your body language. And I don't want us ever to be under the the thinking that we have to outwardly fix ourselves so that we can talk to God. No, He's near us. He came down as a man to save us from our sin. God is with us. And so we can pray to Him no matter what or where we are doing. We don't pray to Him because God doesn't know our hearts, but we pray because He wants a relationship with each of us. Each of us. And every time we take that opportunity to pour out our heart to the Lord, it's not so that He's like, oh, that's what you were worried about. No. But it's so that that relationship can deepen. As you're saying, Lord, this is what's going on in my heart. And He says, I know. I know. And that's what Hannah was doing here. Silently crying out to God as she was in bitterness of soul and weeping in anguish. But since the priest Eli couldn't hear her, we read in the rest of verse 13, it says, Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Now remember, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Perhaps it was common for people to come to the tabernacle drunk at this time. And so, verse 14, Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. 
I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. I like how she words that. Poured out my soul before the Lord. It makes me ask myself, to what or whom do I pour my soul out to? Do I pour out my soul to a trusted friend or to my spouse? Do I pour out my soul to social media or my journal? Those might be helpful, might not, but do I pour out my soul to the Lord? Many of the Psalms in Scripture are simply the transcript of somebody pouring out their heart to the Lord, pouring out their soul to the Lord. And it's a great example for us to come to Him, no matter what we're feeling, but to come to Him and lay ourselves out bare before Him. Hannah continues talking to Eli the priest in verse 16. She says, Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. This is where Hannah's faith truly shines. You see, not only did she go to the Lord in her troubles, not only did she pour out her soul before Him, but afterwards, before anything changed, she was content. She was content. Notice that Hannah had no guarantee that she would be given a son. Eli simply said, may it be so. Not in a prophetic, like, the Lord's going to grant you your request. No, 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 no. It was more in a, may it be so. I'm agreeing with your prayer request. Hannah might remain barren for the rest of her life. She has nothing different. But she'd prayed, and she laid a request out before the Lord, and so she was content. Did she still want a son? Oh, you betcha more than anything else in the world. But Hannah's faith meant that she trusted God. This wasn't a name it and claim it kind of a faith. She didn't lay down before the Lord and said, in the name of the Lord, give me a son. No. But she trusted God to do what was best in His eyes, whether He gave her a son or not. She trusted in the fact that her barrenness was in His hands. Hannah trusted God with her situation even though she didn't yet know the outcome. And that's what I want us to imitate. Your next fill in the blank. Biblical faith means trusting God with our situation regardless of the outcome. It means trusting that He will do what is best for us but not necessarily what we want. It means knowing that God has the power to calm the storm. And yet, faith also knows that when He doesn't calm the storm, He'll carry us through the storm. That's the type of enduring, persevering faith that we're called to have. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, yeah, but I can't. It's, it's too hard. I would say, you're on the right path. You're right. You can't. I can't. 
That's why Jesus came and did the work for us. That's why God gives us His Holy Spirit to give us supernatural strength to keep our eyes on Him and to keep pressing forward. In verses 19 through 28, we read how Samuel is born. Verse 19, it says, Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now, the idea is not that God was like, Oh, Hannah, forgot about you. No, but we're, we're using human language to describe the eternal God. And so the best we can come up with is God remembered Hannah in the sense of he focuses on her now and he meets her need, he blesses her. And so verse 20, so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. It seems that Hannah did not conceive immediately, but in the process of time. How long was that? Weeks? Months? Years? We don't know. But it reminds us of a verse in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, that says, We are to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience. Nobody likes being patient. But it's in those times of waiting that our faith must be exercised. The longer that we wait, the longer we must trust God with our situation. And so, the stronger our faith gets. Hannah is a great example of having both faith and patience. As she waited on the Lord and trusted in Him, whether He answered her prayers in the way that she wanted or not. And so, verse 21 now the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord yearly, the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And so Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish His Word. Now, that's pretty amazing, right? Elkanah didn't say, You did what to the Lord? You vowed to give Him our son? He's my son too. He doesn't say any of that. But he says, May the Lord establish His Word. I'm supportive. And so then the woman stayed and she nursed her son until she had weaned him. Verse 24, Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. So she brought these other things to sacrifice to the Lord. She's not only bringing Samuel as a young boy, maybe three or four years old at this time, to stand before the Lord and begin to serve there, but she's bringing the bowl and the flour, and the wine, all as part of this great sacrifice and offering to the Lord. She came to worship. Verse 25, Then they slaughtered a bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. 
For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worshipped the Lord there. This family is by no means a perfect family. And yet continually we read about them coming and as a family worshipping God. Think about the influence that we have on our children and grandchildren when we give them the example of regularly worshipping the Lord. It's why we keep the children and youth in the main service during our worship time. We don't mind being a little crowded. We don't mind it being a little bit crazy and loud because we want them to see what it means to worship the Lord. We want them to see mom and dad and grandma and grandpa worshiping the Lord. It's so important. Now, in our next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to read these first 11 verses together. And it's about Hannah's prayer of praise. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. Now stop right there. Remember, chapter 1 just ended with Hannah coming and bringing Samuel, her son, to leave him at the tabernacle. He's never going to live with her again. She's never going to get to tuck him into bed at night. She's never going to get to teach him his ABCs anymore. She'll come visit him, but he's going to live there. A great sacrifice she's given to the Lord. And yet, she's rejoicing in the Lord. You see, sometimes we get the idea that we deserve something for our sacrifice to the Lord. We have this idea that God owes us one for all that we've sacrificed to Him. But that's not the type of relationship that we have with God. That would be a works-based relationship. The only thing God owes you, the only thing God owes me, is eternity in hell for our sin. If we're being fair, that's what we have earned. We have something far better than a works-based relationship. We have a grace-based relationship with the Lord. And in that grace-based relationship, God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us far, far better than we could ever deserve. He gives us wonderful things, both earthly and eternal, that we could never earn or never be worthy of. He gives us salvation. He gives us the promise of eternal life with Him forever. And when we worship Him, it's not so that we can get something in return. We worship Him because of what He's already done in the past, and we worship Him for what He's doing right now. And we worship Him for what He's promised to do tomorrow and in the future. Don't allow any ideas in your heart that say, Lord, I've been going to church. Lord, I've been reading your Bible. Lord, I've been fasting and praying. And so, Lord... Here's what I'm asking now. No, 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 no. That's wrong. Say, Lord, here's what I've done for your glory. It's yours. My life is yours. I don't deserve anything except judgment. It's okay to ask things from God, but we ask from a position that says, Lord, I don't deserve it. I'll never deserve it. I'll never be worthy of it. 
But God, you love us and you're gracious. And so I'm going to ask, but I'm going to ask in humility. I'm going to ask with a heart that says, Lord, here's what I think I need. But God, I trust you no more than I do. And I'm going to trust this situation in your hands. Whether you answer my prayer with a, yes, here's that child. Or you answer my prayer with a, no, or not yet. But may we not try to approach the Lord with our works and say, Lord, you owe me one. Verse 1 continues as Hannah is praying to the Lord, and she says, My horn is exalted in the Lord. The horn represents the strength of an animal, and that's the idea here. She's saying, Lord, my strength is lifted up in you. Look at the next part. Hannah says, I smile at my enemies because I have defeated them. No, doesn't say that. She says, I smile at my enemies because they have dropped dead. No, doesn't say that either. She says, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I like that. You see, Hannah can smile at her enemies because in the midst of her suffering, she knows that she is in God's hands. She's rejoicing in the salvation that God has provided for her. She smiles in the face of oppression because she knows that she is on God's side and He's greater than all. Verse 2, she prays and says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, this is Hebrew poetry. You say, well, that doesn't rhyme. You're right. Hebrew poetry doesn't have rhyming words. It has rhyming ideas. And look at this verse too. She says the same thing three different ways. She proclaims how God is unique by saying, no one is holy like the Lord. There is none beside him, nor is there any rock like our God. That's Hebrew poetry. As she's poetically praising God, for the fact that there is none like him. Verse 3, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Notice that Hannah is praising God for his attributes. In verse 2, she said, God is holy and he's unique. In verse 3, she says, God is all-knowing or omniscient. Then in the next several verses, she gives examples of how God is in control. How God can take any situation and turn it upside down or right side up. Look at verse 4. She says, The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar 
from the ash heap, to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. A look at each of these examples reminds us to never be confident in our strength, to never be confident in our health or our provision or our earthly blessings because they can all change in a moment. They're fleeting. It reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, where the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? If you do, then you have the greatest gift you could ever have. And nothing can take that gift away from you. Nobody can take that gift of salvation away from you if you've trusted in Jesus. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, then the best that you have, it's only fleeting. It's only temporary. It's only of this life. Turn to Jesus and let Him be your confidence and your joy. Now please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying turn to Jesus because He will give you what you desire. He might, but turn to Jesus because He has paid for our sin on the cross. Turn to Jesus because He is the only way to have eternal life and be forgiven. Turn to Jesus because of His deep love for you. Hannah continues her prayer with the end of verse 8 where she says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. Now, Hannah is not trying to say the earth is literally sitting on pillars, but Hannah is poetically proclaiming the fact that God is the creator of the earth. And if God created the earth, then nothing is too difficult for Him to do. No situation is too hard for Him. Verse 9, He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah finishes her prayer remembering God's righteous judgment. She remembers and celebrates the fact that God is judge and that He will be the one to determine who is right and who is wrong. Perhaps Hannah ends her prayer on God's judgment because she's so tired of man's imperfect judgment. You see, many Israelites during this time, they would have viewed Hannah and her barrenness and they would have wondered to themselves, I wonder what secret sin she's in. I wonder what she did 
to deserve her barrenness. But Hannah knew she wasn't barren because she was being punished. She was just barren. We live in a fallen world. You might remember this idea from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, where it says, Now as Jesus passed by, Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? They believed that God's blessings meant God approved of that person. And they thought that health issues or tragedies meant that God disapproved of that person. But we read in the very next verse, in verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This reminds us that earthly blessings do not equate to God's approval. Earthly blessings do not equate to God's approval. It also means that earthly hardships do not equate to God's disapproval. I think this is important. Because there are some who think, well, God's blessed me with so much, so He must be pleased with me. God's given me so many good things, so He must be happy with me and how I'm living. That's a false idea. Your circumstances cannot show whether you are right in God's eyes. Don't judge yourself or others based on your circumstances. Judge yourself and others based on God's Word. That's what we can use to judge. Another way we might judge incorrectly is with our feelings. Someone might say, well, I don't feel guilty to do this. I don't feel guilty to live this way. I feel great. My conscience is clear. That's great. But that doesn't change God's view of you. There are many people who will go to hell with a clear conscience only to suddenly realize that they've only fooled themselves. And that's heartbreaking. That's why God gives us His Word. That's why He tells us here, your feelings cannot determine whether you are right in God's eyes. Your feelings can't determine that for you. Remember the book of Judges? It ended with everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We can deceive others. We can even deceive ourselves. But God's judgment is perfect because He knows all things and He judges our hearts. And so Hannah ends her prayer, thankful that the only opinion that really matters is God's opinion. And God knows all things. He will judge accurately. Now Hannah's just finished her worshiping before the Lord. She's given her son to serve at the tabernacle. And we'll finish with verse 11 here. It says, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. We started this story with a broken woman who desperately wanted a son. And now her son Samuel is growing up serving the Lord at the tabernacle. Samuel will eventually hear God's voice. Samuel will eventually 
become the last judge of Israel, leading the people into spiritual revival. Samuel will become a prophet, speaking God's words to the people. You see, when God answered Hannah's cry and gave her a son, it wasn't just for Hannah to break free from her barrenness. It was for Israel to break free from their rebellion and idolatry. God saw more than a broken woman needing physical healing. He saw a broken nation that needed spiritual healing. I don't know what your barren situation is. I don't know what it is in your life that keeps you up at night, that makes you skip meals, or that causes you to weep. I don't know, and I don't pretend to know what it feels like. But I take comfort in the God who does. The God who knows exactly what you're dealing with. The God who himself came down and suffered on the cross in our place. I'm so thankful that we serve not only the one and only God, but a God who was willing to endure suffering and say, I know what that feels like. I've been there. That's amazing. God invites you to pour out your soul to Him. Pour out your soul to Him. And if God miraculously, graciously answers your prayers and He ends your barren situation, He calms the storm in your life, then praise God. But if He doesn't answer the prayers in the way that you had hoped, and instead He offers to carry you through your barren situation, then praise God. Because His grace is sufficient. His grace is enough. The fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins is still far, far greater than we can ever deserve. And so may you and I rest in His grace. May we not only trust Him, with our souls, but trust Him with life's hardships. Trust Him with every day's burdens. And say, Lord, I don't always understand what You're doing. I don't understand why You allow the things that You do. But God, I know that You love me. You proved it on the cross. And one day You're going to right all wrongs. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word and we're so thankful for your love. Lord, today as we study your word, we talk about salvation and you coming and dying on the cross for us. We talk about this idea that for anybody who will trust in you as their Lord and Savior, they will be forgiven for all of their sin instantly and they'll be destined for heaven. And God, if there's anybody here today that has not made that decision or listening online who has not been living for you, but they've been living for themselves, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would just speak to their heart right now. God, that your Holy Spirit would invite them to pour out their soul to you and say, Lord, I still have questions, but Lord, I know enough to know that I need to trust in you. that I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. 
and to save me from my sin and from judgment. Lord, fill me with your spirit and change me from the inside out. Lord, maybe some of us are here today and we are feeling pretty broken. Lord, we're suffering with things that only you know of and only you know the extent of. Lord, you are called the God of all comfort. God, I pray that you would give us the faith to turn to you and simply say, Lord, would you carry these burdens? Because I can't carry them any longer. God, would you take all of the things that are in my heart? Would you carry them for me? God, I trust you with my circumstances, with my situation. And Lord, however it ends, I trust that you are doing what's best. God, would you help us to fix our eyes on you, to know that you love us, and to rest in your grace. Lord, would you use us for your kingdom and your glory. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Strengthen our faith, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.